CBDC. The Bank for Canadian Entrepreneurs is a proud partner of the Startup Women podcast. BDC is here for women entrepreneurs in their efforts to move forward and achieve their business goals. To meet their specific needs, BDC provides financing, strategic advice, and has a wide selection of free resources. Find out more at bdc.ca forward slash women. BDC is here for what's ahead. Scotiabank is proud to co-present the Startup Women podcast. Through the Scotiabank Women Initiative, Scotiabank aims to help advance women-led businesses with access to capital, education, and mentorship. To learn more, visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com. In the month of April, the Startup Women podcast will be taking a deep dive into rural entrepreneurship across Canada. What unique challenges do rural founders face? Are there advantages of starting up in a rural ecosystem? What specific support does this community need? To facilitate these important discussions, we could not be more excited to welcome Mary Doyle, founder of Rural On Purpose, part of the Startup Canada Communities Network, as our guest host. Welcome, Mary. Thank you, Kayla. I'm so excited that Rural On Purpose is formally partnering with Startup Canada to help empower and champion rural founders across the country. This month on the Startup Women podcast, we'll connect you with leading experts, entrepreneurs, and organizations in Canada's rural startup space, giving you a firsthand look into the rural entrepreneurship landscape and helping rural founders make their vision a reality faster. This podcast is a production of Startup Canada, Canada's entrepreneurship organization, and is presented in partnership with the Business Development Bank of Canada and Scotiabank. I'm your host, Mary Doyle, founder of Rural On Purpose. Welcome to the show. We're thrilled to have Abby Pond on our show today. Abby Pond is the founder and CEO of Queen of Cups Lingerie, Inc., launched in 2016. She builds custom fit lingerie for people who are as individual as the product she makes. She's a passionate community builder, one of the founders of Startup St. Stephen in 2017, and a town councillor from 2014 to 2016. She is a board member of the St. Stephen and Area Chamber of Commerce and chair of Dialogue New Brunswick, helping to lead New Brunswick toward greater social cohesion. Her company completed the Summer Institute Business Accelerator Program in 2019. She knows the rewards and challenges of starting and growing a business because she's living the same experience and wants to make it easier for others around her. Her business was named Business of the Year by the St. Stephen Chamber of Commerce in 2019. Creativity has been and continues to be a driving force in Abby's life. She is a songwriter, a musician, a knitter, a spinner, a sewer, a painter, and is always up for trying a new creative outlet. Abby is happiest when she is scheming strategically, drinking coffee, and planning her next startup in her garden with her 10-year-old and her menagerie of animals. Welcome to the show, Abby. Thanks, Mary. It's so good to see you. It's great to see you too. I'm really looking forward to this interview because I think um, you're such a great example of someone who's living an authentic life in a rural community. And I've often been asked, how do you define rural? And my answer has always been with story, because I think it's a connector. And I think everybody has a rural story, whether they live in rural or not. And I think it's, it's uh, a really, really great place to start 
when we're having a discussion about rural. So I'm going to start the interview with that question. What's your rural story? Why are you in St. Stephen? Well, Mary, I am a rural girl. So I grew up in a very small community in New Brunswick. I grew up in the suburbs of a very small community in New Brunswick. Um, so the community itself only has less than a thousand people and I grew up outside of it. So the first 18 years of my life were uh, in very rural parts of New Brunswick. And outside of the time I was at university and four years that I spent in London in the UK, I've lived in rural areas across Canada for the rest of my life. Um, so for me, it's kind of the, the default setting. It's where I am myself um, and it feels like I'm putting on masks when I go to other places. And how we ended up in St. Stephen, um, we were living in the UK. We were living in one of the biggest cities in the world. Uh, our visas were expiring and we had a young child and we had decisions to make about where did we want to raise our child? What did we want our, our life to look like for the next 20 years? And we decided we wanted to come back to Canada. And so my husband is a, um, now a freelance journalist and he had an opportunity to kind of make a go of it anywhere. So it was really my decision on where we would go. And I started applying for jobs and we kind of had narrowed it down to two places. It was either here in New Brunswick or Yellowknife. And uh, my mother is very thankful that Yellowknife did not win. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> we ended up here in St. Stephen. That's, I mean, that's, that's a really beautiful story. And I love the fact that it was, it was family and it was children and trying to make decisions about raising them and thinking about how you were raised and, and all of that influenced your decision. It's a story that I hear a lot. I, I mean, it's my story. It's very similar in my story as well. And I think that it changes things, doesn't it? You know, you can go off and you can do, you can, you can explore and, and try things in, in urban centers. And, you know, when you start thinking about raising your children, what is it that's going through your mind when you're thinking, trying to make a decision about where to live as a parent? Well, for me, it was a lack of the, the community. So the, not the like physical infrastructure, of course, you know, there's opportunities in a large city that you would never have in terms of culture and education and exposure to different cultures um, that you would never have necessarily in a rural area, um, but you can if you work at it. But for me, it was I didn't have the people around me that um, would support you in raising a child. So where who do you call if you want to go out on a date night? Um, who do you call when your, your child is sick. Who do you invite to birthday parties? Um, this is before our child was in school. How do you find the right school? Um, you have to basically register your child from birth in London to be able to put your child in a school. And there, it was just simpler to move back to where I knew we could build that kind of community and network of support. Um, to be closer to family, having a child overseas without that network of support, I had never appreciated how much it means to have that kind of support when you're suddenly a family. But there were also financial considerations. We were, we had great paying jobs, um, if you look on paper, but London is an expensive city to live in. And so if you can't, and, and childcare is very expensive, schools are very expensive. So if you can't take advantage of all of the wonderful things that are in that urban center because you can't afford to do them. Um, why wouldn't you want to move to a rural area where you can 
have a much higher quality of life for a lower expense and then make pointed efforts and trips to go to areas to get those cultural things that you might be missing or feel lacking. I love that answer. And to go from from London to St. Stephen and to raise your family there, it was, must have been a, a huge kind of, you know, mental adjustment to, to make that move. But you said something I think was really important. You said staying in the, the city offered all kinds of opportunities and amenities that you wouldn't have in a, in a small community unless you work at it. And when you said those words, it kind of led perfectly into the next question I want to ask you, because you've been a female counselor, a startup community leader, a chamber of commerce board member, and you run your own business. So you are by definition, a community leader. Do you think that there is a connection between entrepreneurship and community building? And can you talk about that a little bit? Because that that whole comment, when you said, you can, if you work at it, um, really stuck with me. Sure. Um, I think part of it was feeling that lack of community um, was what made me such a passionate community builder when I returned to Canada. Um, I've always been involved in community building and volunteer um, activities because that's how I was raised. That's how my parents taught me to be. Um, If you are a member of a community, you have to give back to it and help it to grow and you help foster it. Otherwise you lose it. So I think I brought that into my entrepreneurship as well. Not everybody does. There are different types of entrepreneurs, just like there are different kinds of any kind of person. But I think in rural communities, you see more of it because you know everybody and everybody is intricately linked. Um, There's no six degrees of separation, particularly in New Brunswick. My husband jokes about all of the interconnectedness and a comedian that moved here from the UK made this joke about New Brunswickers giving directions by where things used to be. And but there is a connection between wanting to build something yourself, but knowing the only way you're going to survive is if the people around you also believe in your idea. So if you're in a rural community, everybody around you are potentially your supporters, your clients. Um, and so you need them either directly as customers or as supports for your business. So you have to build that community around you. you your business can't thrive if your community isn't thriving. I, I couldn't agree more. And that leads me to the next question is how did Queen of Cups lingerie get started? And was it a challenge to launch that business in a small community? I couldn't find a bra that fit. <laughs> That's... That's how this business started. So when you're in an urban center, you can find specialty stores sometimes um, that will provide you with the goods that you need. Uh, When you move to rural New Brunswick, it's pretty hard to find specialty bra stores. Um, There are some in the larger centers, but their stock is limited. I was um, getting pretty frustrated and I'm a creative person. And I'm also one of those people that looks at something and said, I can do that. I can make that. Um, And my husband is one of the people that looks at something and they're like, that's amazing. I could pay a professional to make that. So that's why our house is um, a never ending list of unfinished reno projects. Anyway, um, (laughs) I I decided I was going to learn how to make my own bra, which I did. And it's a complex garment. There's a lot more that goes into it that um, I hadn't necessarily considered. Took me a while to get good at it. Um, and it took me finding a mentor um, and learning kind of the ins and outs of it 
um, before I really got good at it. But then the first thing you do when you're in a group of women and you've got a new bra and it fits, you're like, I got a bra and it fits. <laughs> and uh, they're like, oh my goodness, where did you get it? And so that led to people asking if I could make them bras as well, because they had the same issues. And I remember walking into a party, a birthday party, a friend of mine was having, and I didn't know many other people at the party. And she said, hi, everybody, this is Abby. She makes bras. And she turned to me and said, are you wearing one that you made? And I said, yes, not thinking. And she just pulled my shirt up <laughs> over my head. It's like, look, isn't it amazing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I, I'm a scientist. I'm, and I work, I was working in the nonprofit sector. I wasn't thinking I was going to start a business. And I entered a local business boot camp with the idea of, again, with community building, starting a makerspace because that's what I wanted to see and what I thought would be good in our community. And I ended up pivoting in that um, during a discussion about profitability when one of the instructors said, well, what could you be doing when you're in the makerspace to, you know, help to generate revenue? And I thought about it for a second and I said, well, I can make bras. And the instructor, who was a man, looked at me and he said, well, how much would you charge for those? And I said, well, you know, this $150, $200. And he said, what, would people pay that? And one of the other participants slapped her hands down on the table and said, I would pay you more than that if you can make me a bra that fits right now. So we pivoted and that's how we ended up where we are. <laughs> that's amazing. So it's constantly walking through an open door. Like every, every time, every opportunity that was kind of presented to you, every question that you answered led to something new it sounds like yes and you just have to be willing to go where it leads you do you think that that is unique to entrepreneurs that that whole openness to you know going where something leads you i think it's something that you have it's a skill that you have to have or it's almost like you have to shut off that reflex um that says or that little voice inside your head that says oh well no, you can't do this because you're doing these other things or, oh, but that's a bit risky or, oh, but all of these things might happen. Um, I think it is something that that little switch that you can turn off that terrifies other people is something that a lot of entrepreneurs have in common. And I, I agree with you. I think, I think that having an entrepreneurial mindset is really important. And, and it's obviously a big part of your community building efforts as well because you're, you're creating things that didn't exist before in your community and you're, you're helping support other people who are adding things to the community that, you know, they might not have had if they, if they didn't, weren't able to turn off that, that, that switch in their minds, like, like you said, that casts doubt and concern about, about starting something. And I think in a lot of rural communities, particularly where you have established business or you have established organizations, things like chambers of commerce, um, in times when business is tough, which it has been in New Brunswick for a long time, some of us turn off that entrepreneurial switch and just become business people. And there is a difference between someone who's entrepreneurial and someone who's a business person. But I think a lot of the times in the entrepreneurial community, when we get into our circles, we forget that there are business people who have, have that switch too. We just need to help turn it back on. And that's one of the things that I found here in St. Stephen is that there are a lot of amazing business owners who are completely supportive and have wonderful entrepreneurial ideas. They just need that little bit of support and encouragement and spark 
to get them going. And that's leadership. And that's exactly what you're bringing to your community. And I, I love it. And I hope, you know, I know that this is inspiring other people who are listening and someone who might not have taken a chance, someone who might have that, that voice in their head telling them, you know, that they, they shouldn't move forward with something. And I hope that they're listening. I hope that they see that, you know, it can be done. I want to also ask you about the name of your company. And i you know, we didn't talk about this before, but I think that Queen of Cups is a tarot card, is it not? It is. Can you tell us about, is there, is there a significance? Because I, I, the play on words is really, is great. And um, I'm just wondering if the, the tarot card has something to do with it. Well, what, where the, the phrase, the name came from was from a brainstorming session, a group brainstorming session that we did in that original business accelerator. Um, that our local chamber had here. And there were a couple of other businesses there and we brainstormed for everybody. So we did the same exercise for all the different businesses. And this was one of the things that came out of it. And so when I took that list and I went back to think about it on my own, it's not that I'm a terribly witchy person or (laughs) things, um, but I went to look up, well, like what? Because I knew it was a tarot card as well. And I went and looked up what the significance behind that tarot, tarot card was. And I'm like, oh, yeah, um, that would fit. Um, so it, it's about um, connecting to intuition and empowerment and water. Um, and then there's all kinds of different connections. And I'm sure somebody with a much deeper um, knowledge of tarot is going to contradict me on something I'm going to say. But when I read through those initial components, it clicked with what I wanted to do with my business. Because I wasn't building my business to create the next Victoria's Secret. I was building my business so that women could do the things they needed to do in their lives without being distracted by crappy underwear. I think it's fantastic. I love the the extra layer to it. And I love that it, it, it really, really speaks to women and the essence of what it is that that we are. And I love it. I think it's, I think it's fantastic, which leads me to the next question. Do you consider yourself to be a social enterprise? I'm, I'm, I know the answer has to be yes, or a version of that, but how important is social impact to your business? I wouldn't be in business if it didn't have some sort of positive social impact. So in the UK, I worked in website development for a company that made websites for charities. And we, the charity and social enterprise section sector there is huge. And it's way more developed um, than it is here in Canada. And uh, one of our clients was a school for social entrepreneurs. And I learned so much from working with them and seeing how they were helping people. And so as my own business started to evolve, I very clearly from day one wanted it to have a positive impact in as many ways as possible, particularly because the fashion industry is the second largest polluter on the planet. Wow. Uh, So there I'm, I'm a biologist and a climate change specialist um, with my other educational hat on. So the last thing I wanted to be doing was creating a business that's adding to an already horrible problem. And the fact that you said I wouldn't be in business if it didn't, if I wasn't having some kind of a social impact. And I think the fact that you started with that premise, you started a business with that belief is something that we're seeing more and more of. And I think it's really, really good for the world. And, and it's a calling a very different group of entrepreneurs to the table. 
that we're seeing and they're solving all kinds of really great problems. So, you know, can you expand a little bit more on, on some of the, some of the, the social issues? I just from going to your website and I really encourage everybody, let's tell everybody what your website is. The website to go to is um, queenofcupslingerie.com. And uh, that's standard for any company, but yeah, queenofcupslingerie.com. Easy to find. Easy, easy to, to find. find. Yes. Um, it's in rebuilding stage. So I would actually suggest going to shop.queenofcupslingerie.com. But we, there are kind of three main issues that I try to address in what my business is doing. The garment industry is notorious for horrible working conditions and the exploitative labor particularly uh, for women and girls and particularly the lingerie industry because all, all bras are made by hand. Somebody somewhere is sewing a bra. So if you're buying your bra for $19.99, guaranteed the person that's making it is not making a living wage. So I wanted to create a product that was not only paying people, but was paying people a living wage for what they were doing. And I wanted to do it in my town. I didn't want to be outsourcing overseas because it's incredibly difficult to trace through your supply chain whether or not things are actually happening the way that they say they're supposed to be happening. In the fashion industry, it's really complex. So the way to take that complexity out of it is to man- manufacture your own. So that's what I started. That's the key component of empowering women is paying people what they're worth to, to do the work and stopping that exploitative chain from happening. There are lots of great companies that are working to on the other end to make sure that the people that are working in the garment industry overseas are being paid fairly and have great working conditions. So there are companies that are producing there that are, are doing that and that's great, but that wasn't within my wheelhouse of skill capabilities um, at the time when I started. So I focused on producing here. The second component of it was that the fashion industry itself pollutes through overproduction of cheap garments. Millions of tons of garments are thrown away every year because they're poorly made or they made too many of them and they just end up in the landfill. And I don't know about you, but there are many women out there listening to this that probably have a drawer full of underwear um, and there's a lot in there that you've maybe only worn once or twice and it's too uncomfortable and you know where that's going to end up. It's a, they're going to end up in a donation bag going somewhere and eventually ending up in the landfill or straight in the landfill from your house. And so I wanted to build products that lasted, that fit. So instead of having a drawer full of 10 bras that you hated, you might have two or three that were amazing and that lasted you longer than the normal ones. And I wanted to build them out of materials that were not polluting the environment um, in how they were made, how they were dyed, those sorts of things. So that whole environmental component. That's the second part of the empowerment. And the third is how I sell the product. I don't want scantily clad women strutting down a runway Hmm. surrounded by men being sexy as my brand. Um, The whole kind of 90s, 2000s marketing women's underwear as something for women to take off for men's pleasure is not my, that's not my gig. Our underwear is there to support us. It's fundamental support garments. And if you're distracted, if you're uncomfortable, if you can't find a bra that fits you to allow you to wear the clothes that make you feel confident and comfortable, you can't achieve what you want to achieve in your day. So my 
whole premise is to make underwear that fits you, that's comfortable, that makes you feel confident, that makes you feel sexy because you're awesome. Um, so you can do amazing. Love it. <laughs> I love it. And, you know, you're speaking to every single woman listening here. And hopefully every man that's listening who would would consider purchasing something for some uh, another woman in their life. It's so important. And the the way that you are um, approaching everything from the creation, the building of your, your product to the sale of your product is so responsible and so authentically female. I love it. And the fact that you're educating people as you're, as you're selling, as you're, you're producing, you know, products and service selling services, you, you are educating people. And I think one of the most important things, one of the things that can empower us is that social responsibility as a consumer. Yes. So, so many of us don't know what the actual cost of a garment is. And I get a lot of questions about why are your prices so high? And I said, this is how, this is how much it costs to make this type of garment. And our kind of concept of the actual cost of production has been just completely skewed by the way that industry has worked and moved to move to cheaper and cheaper labor and cut down costs and cut down costs and mass produce. And so to create a garment that's custom fit, made from ethical materials, made locally, this is what it costs. And I think it's something a lot of us need to become familiar with. Can everybody afford my product? No, but this is, if you can afford it, this is how you support the types of businesses that are are changing the industries. I think that what you've made me aware of, and hopefully our audience today, is that the cost of buying something cheaper is far greater than what people actually realize the cost and, you know, the, the people who are producing the, the product and, and the image of women and the, you know, just the whole circular economy piece where you're talking about the life cycle of your product and the people that are impacted by that, that whole journey. I think, I think that's really, really important. And I, I appreciate that you have been, you know, teaching people about that because that education component is really, really important. Thank you for doing that. How has the pandemic affected your business? Oh, well, <laughs> last year, the first week of March last year, this time, I was taking my first vacation that I'd taken <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> um, and I was having a ball. It was um, a gift to myself. Uh, my friend and I went on a girl's vacation, which is there's no more Canadian kind of vacation than this. Than this. We took a week off to go watch curling in person. <laughs> Canadian. So Canadian. So um, we came back from that event and I looked at, I came back to my office, was getting back in the groove of things, looked at my kind of three month projections of where we were going. And I was forecasting my highest three months of revenue for my company going through March, April, May. Typically that's my busiest time because I also teach bra making um, to people who sew. And so and so, and so I usually am busiest at this time. It's the time when people are looking to have a project to do. They're getting a little restless and spring fevery. And so I get a lot of people taking my classes. I taught all over Atlantic Canada. So I had full classes sold out in Halifax. Um, and I also have a lot of people looking for 
new underwear for spring and they've gotten over there. I've spent all my money at Christmas. They just started spending again. So things were good. Um, then the pandemic hit and my revenue went to zero immediately because all of my classes were in person. Um, the supplies that I sell, which is one of my revenue sources, um, were, from my, were coming from my students. I had a small website, um, but people couldn't buy my custom products online. All my custom bras, I was doing the fittings in person. So it was a huge, huge impact. There were, there were a lot of tears for a couple of days. Mm. Um, and then I said, okay, what can I do? Well, I have a website. Let's start doing video fittings. Let's, I worked out how that would work. I answered the call from the government when they asked, are there businesses that can help make PE? We have a shortage. I couldn't, I'm a very small facility, so I didn't end up with any of the government contracts for making a medical PPE, but we responded to the shortage by making thousands of non-medical masks for use for essential workers here and for the general public. And then just kind of kept going and made it, managed to survive. New Brunswick was very, very lucky in that our government was very decisive and acted very quickly. And by May, we were starting to open back up again and we had very few cases. So over the summer, was able to operate sort of normally with um, some, some things in place. But once fall came again, there are still um, a lot of issues that every, every little lockdown, every little component mm. kind of stretches out our cash flow. But the main thing is that um, my customers are women and women are the people who've been hardest hit by this pandemic. So um, yeah, they have, it's, it's uh, really tricky. Oh, I voiced some criticism of a provincial program here that was designed to help businesses that were specifically affected by the government's moving into stricter phases during the pandemic, um, specifically businesses like salons, which are generally owned by women. And my criticism of that, of that and many other programs have been that they're targeted towards businesses with a larger footprint. So they've mm -hmm. got multiple employees, most women entrepreneurs, under four employees. They're targeted towards businesses that have the financial infrastructure to be able to access help via a big bank where most women entrepreneurs are self-funded. They aren't getting money from venture capitalists. They aren't getting money from commercial banks um, in the same numbers that other businesses are. And as we know, we've heard um, the people that are getting laid off that are in the most precarious industries, they're women. The women who are now home trying to deal with homeschooling and um, caring for loved ones because care has gone down it's women. So it's this whole, this pandemic has such a mental, physical, spiritual impact on women. It's pretty devastating. It is. It, and, and for your industry specifically, I mean, you, you have all kinds of challenges besides the fact that you're a female entrepreneur dealing with all of those, all of those issues as well you are in a smaller community and you didn't fit, you didn't qualify for a lot of the programs. Does that stop you from looking at other programs? Like if you're looking for support and help and you realize that you don't fit into a box that provide, that's going to allow for that support, do you go back again and look for something else later? Or do, does that turn you off and make you think, I, I can't rely on the government to help support me. I've got to find some other way. 
I'm just wondering if it's something that really deters after that first initial shutdown, does it deter you from going back and looking again? Completely. So the first the first wave, the only government program to date in the pandemic that my business qualified for, and they didn't qualify for it initially, was the wage subsidy program. And every resulting program that they've released, that's, I just, I just, after about the third one, um, that I spent all this time gathering information and, and completing applications and doing, I just gave up. I'm like, it's not worth my time. And it's gotten to the point where and I talked to a couple of other business owners about this, not just women, but other business owners in general, who by the time November, December of this year rolled around, they've had to contract their business so much that even when they kept lowering the eligibility guidelines, they, they no longer qualified. So by the time my business would have qualified for commercial rent subsidies, for instance, I had to make the financial decision to move out of my rented space and move back into a home studio. Mm. By the time I could have gotten my business cash flow back up to be able to hire myself back on, I laid myself off in March so I could keep my employee. By the time I could get cash flow back up to do that, I couldn't hire myself to get myself in the wage subsidy program. So I couldn't qualify for that. The recent round here of a smaller provincial grant um, required that every business have two full-time employees in order to qualify. Um, but so many businesses that had full or part-time employees have cut their workforce back significantly so that they are doing the majority of the work themselves um, and they're probably not paying themselves. So they don't have any full-time equivalent employees left. So these these programs seem well-intentioned, but it's almost like after you get rejected the first couple of times, it's you're better just focused on doing what you need to do than to face rejection yet again. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's why I asked that question, because I've, I've heard that from a lot of people. And, you know, some people aren't even entering into it, you know, they're not entertaining any support at all because they feel the way that you do. They've either had that experience or they don't have faith that they're going to be represented or it's too late. It's yeah. too late. And, and it's a timing thing. You mentioned timing, all the things that had to be done that, that have set you back that had you had the support in place just a little bit earlier it would have changed things. So yeah. I, I, you know, I guess we don't, we don't have any real training in, in uh, how to deal with uh, emergency management situations like this, but it's, it's a lesson. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that there are lots of people who are listening and some, you know, government is listening and we can try and make that better because I know it's a process issue. Well, and for me, um, I was speaking with another entrepreneur and we were talking about um we hadn't qualified for the forty thousand dollar business loans and we were talking about if somebody gave me forty thousand dollars tomorrow would i have the mental capacity and energy and mm -hmm. faith the bandwidth to be able to do anything with that money now that i've had to strip myself back so far um ahaha bra maker stripping herself um <laughs> and i had this <laughs> I had this discussion with um, elected representatives uh, back in the spring when they were when they first came out with this program, and I said, "I don't need more debt, and I don't need forty thousand dollars. If you gave me 
a $10,000 grant, I could pivot online, do the slight technical work I need to do to my website and market it so that people would know how to find me. And I wouldn't need a wage subsidy. I wouldn't need any other help. I'd be able to pay my bills. If I had had that help right out of the, right out of the gate, no strings attached, let's, let's get this going. Now it's going to take way more for us to, to build our businesses out of this hole that we've built ourselves. And I didn't get very much traction then. And a lot of business owners are afraid to speak out. I, whenever I do speak out, um, because I'm, I just have no filter. Um, <laughs> I, entrepreneur. <laughs> a lot of entrepreneurs are afraid to speak out to say, you know, my business is in trouble or this isn't working for me or, and they don't want to speak out in case they get blacklisted. And in rural communities or in smaller provinces, if you get marked as that person that starts making noise, it can affect your business. So there's that very real fear that a lot of people have as business owners. They don't want to speak up, particularly um, if there's anything political involved, because they don't want there to be repercussions to their business. And so whenever I do, I always get messages from business owners who are saying, oh, I, I'm so thankful that you spoke up. I could never do that. But you, what you're saying, that's my story too. So I'm happy to take all of the black for everybody else. <laughs> you know what you're doing though, Abby? I, when I listen to you, I'm not hearing somebody who is complaining. I'm hearing somebody who is frustrated with a system and is offering a solution. And is saying, if you had done this, or if you did this in the future, or if this change, it will, it will work, it will support businesses, you're, you're offering a solution, you know, as well as expressing your frustration. So there is never, ever anything wrong with that. And that that's what leadership is. And that's what you're doing when you're representing the other business owners who are listening and, and are experiencing the same things. So, you know, I'm cheering for you. I am so glad that you were able to survive through the pandemic thus far. I think what you're doing is a huge service and it's a spectacular model story for women entrepreneurs, for any entrepreneur, but rural entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs, and uh, it's very inspiring. So I'm, I'm really thankful that you're still here and that you were able to make it through. I, I, I do have one, one last question before we go. What advice do you have for someone who might be thinking about starting a business in a rural community? I think that you should talk to the people in your community and get some very real feedback on what you want to do and what your idea is. And if you're a person that has a specific idea for a specific business to get some real feedback, not, you know, friends saying, Oh yeah, totally. I'd buy that from you. But um, there are people in your communities that can help you with those questions. And there are people on the internets um, like me, like Mary, who can help you too to evaluate your idea. But if you just, you're like, I want, I think I want to be a business person. I want to start a business. Um, there are also people you can talk to, to help you refine some ideas because there are so many opportunities waiting. You can look, if you're a person that looks around your community and sees the opportunities, then start to make them happen. Cause there's never any time that's better than now, unless it was yesterday. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, procrastinator says yesterday was probably a better idea but 
now, you know, just now is the next best talking. time. Yeah, just start talking to people and don't keep it inside. Don't keep it a secret. That kind of the idea of holding business ideas close to your chest and not letting anybody know what's going on. And that's all bullcrap. Don't be afraid to be transparent about what it is you want to do, because that's how you find the people that will help you make it happen because you can't make it on your own. And if you listen to your story today, you see all of those doors and all those pathways that that opened up because you had conversations with people, everything from your the name of your your company, right to today. I mean, you've you've been walking through those doors and and talking to people. So you're a perfect example, you're you're living that recommendation. And I love it. One, one more, I have to get it in because I just if you could give me a number, how many other startups do you have at least partially formulated in your head that you would like to begin? Because I don't suspect that this is the only business you've ever considered starting. Well, I've got another one cooking right now with a partner. Oh, real one. Okay. Uh, so we're in the process of, of getting that going. And that dates back to my kind of new version of my makerspace idea. So it's Interesting. been bubbling for a while. Um, and I, yeah, I have at least six others. Um, at least six. Yeah. That's what, that's what I wanted to know. I wanted to know because, and when you said that you sounded like they're in various stages of, of development and, uh, and I'm sure that you have far more than six written in books, like other entrepreneurs, ideas that you, you put, you know, you'd need 10 lifetimes to kind of actually create, but, um, I need a clone, Mary. I need a clone. <laughs> So if you're looking, if you're looking for um, some inspiration and uh, you want to talk to anybody, it sounds like Abby's open to oh, yes. any kind of conversation with somebody who wants to start something or who can connect on any level with the conversation that we've had today. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, Abby, and I want to be a customer. So <laughs> we'll have to talk about that too. I'm, I'm in Ontario, so we'll have to figure out how to do that. But um, well, I've had customers all over North America. We can awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm in and um, I'm going to be following your story and uh, I want to stay connected. So thank you so much for today and for inspiring this audience. Thanks for having me, Mary. Thank you for joining us this week on the Startup Women podcast, where we help women entrepreneurs to start and build thriving businesses. Thank you to the Startup Canada production team, BDC and Scotiabank for helping us to power women entrepreneurs. To learn more about rural entrepreneurship and to plug into the Startup Canada network, visit www.startupcan.ca or www.ruralonpurpose.com. Until next time, I'm Mary Doyle. It's time to choose to challenge the status quo and unleash the full potential of women. Mm -hmm.